Hello, and welcome to AMO Kenzoku, episode 20. We are a group of four bubblegum crisis boomer otaku who wanted an excuse to talk about anime, manga, and any related subjects we find interesting. The Kenzoku are Sam. Hello. Nick. Good evening. Mike. Hey, y'all. And myself, Dylan. This episode is being recorded on 13 October 2022. Today we are continuing our deep dive into Otaku, uh, Otaku no Video. Lots of spoilers. And as a reminder, it's up available for purchase for a reasonable price in both Blu-ray or DVD from Animego. And it is streaming on Retro Crush. Hashin! So, with that, uh, I have one minor addition from our California Crisis episode which is that the uh, character designs or the same person who does character designs for the exceedingly long running uh, legend of galactic heroes. And once you look at them and then you look at the character designs for that, you'll say, Oh yeah, that makes sense. It's clearly the same person. Uh, So that's the only minor thing there. And now we'll drop over to Sam. who wanted to bring up something of a, would you rather go ahead, Sam? Yeah, so I was watching my evening anime episode with dinner, my evening entertainment, and a thought occurred to me. Um, So let's say you have uh, an action anime, and you're pretty excited about it. Um, It's got a pretty good plot. Um, Would you rather the anime be totally hand animated, but the quality is kind of middling or, you know, uh, just due to like, you know, to keep things in budget, or would you rather made heavy use of a 2d imitating CG? um, So you get kind of more emotion uh, than you would otherwise. My instinctive reaction is to prefer the totally hand animated though. I don't know if that's actually what I would prefer in practice. All right. Dylan? I'm going to go with the hand as well, because I feel like with that, you get much better. uh, You you can have a better chance at having a good key art. And if the in-between isn't there and that's not as smooth, I almost feel like that's always been a thing of anime that's made it distinct from, like, big-budget Disney animated stuff is that it's always been done with fewer of the in-between smooth motion things. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with the hand animation. All right. And Nick, where do you stand? Well, I personally have actually watched both because a, a decent amount of Netflix's, um, co-produced stuff actually for a while was that weird hybrid you know cgi imitating 2d Mm -hmm. and some of it was done well like i think b stars was done well Mm -hmm. um and i think that's because animals intrinsically don't have the micro expressions that humans do so i think that's why it worked uh an example of it not working so great was season one of baki that was I like Baki a lot, and two seasons two and three made up for it. But dear God, those! I, I, if you guys want to see some really horrifying 3D CGI, you should watch season one parts of season <laughs> season one of Baki. It's really, really bad. So that being said, I, I mean, I've especially in recent times, I've actually learned to tolerate um the the 3D imitating 2D more. But I still feel like in in a vacuum, I almost always prefer hand-drawn. That's, that's To me, that's what anime is, is that, you know, even if yeah. it's average, it's it's that, you know, hand-drawn hand-drawn look, and I mm-hmm. think, you know, studios have gotten better using digital effects, for sure. Like, I think Trigger is a company that's gotten astronomically better at using 3D effects to, to augment um, 
2D animation. Just you know, watch uh, Cyberpunk uh, Edge Runners to to see that. But if you want to mm-hmm. see them, you know, in their early days where they were not so good at, it, you just have to watch Kill the Kill, where there's some, in my opinion, some of the worst ap- ap- applications of 3D CG in a 2D anime. Oh so. man, I would almost defend it, but it's been a while since I've seen it because it was, uh, it didn't seem like it was trying hard to blend in. I was almost a stylistic choice, but. I don't know. I I, I'm giving him a bit more slack now because this was I be, I believe Kill a Kill was the first project they did after they comp- all those guys you know like Otsuka and and Imaishi and all those guys left left Gainax to make Trigger right. I want to say Kill a Kill yeah. was the first major production they did after they all left Gainax. So I believe so. Yeah. I you know I I'll, so. I'll give them a bit more slack um, for that one. Uh, clearly they've made a name for themselves since then and the like. Oh, geez, it's it's been probably at least ten years since Kill a Kill, right? Uh, 2013. Okay, almost 10 years. So, and you know, in the nine years, they've clearly made a pretty big name for themselves. So, actually, uh, I was I was going to say they didn't do any um, CG characters, but I, I vaguely remember that near the end they did do some CG characters, and I think that was pretty awful. I don't remember characters. I, I I won't lie. I couldn't finish the series. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I I do remember a particular characters like I don't even remember whatever their whatever their transformation was. I'll, I'll call it their bunkai because that's <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. God, <laughs> Kill a Kill fans are gonna just murder me. Um, I hope you. But you know what I'm talking about. Like one yeah. of them, like ended up making this huge like blimp looking thing out of like music notes and it was animated hideously in cg it was so bad it was was really really bad um i was also a lot more scrutinizing of 3d cg back then because even at that point i still back in it isn't until honestly the last i feel like four to five years that i that i can start watching things that to me actually look okay uh a good example again same same studio as uh as uh, B-Stars, the upcoming uh, reboot of Trigun mm-hmm. was incredibly divisive, to say the least. But one thing that I kind of really got on board with was actually how they adapted the that th- hybrid 3D style. It looks actually really, really good. I don't know if I like the character redesigns all that much, but you know, we'll mm-hmm. leave that for another episode. But to uh... Uh, I feel like the place my brain goes to when I'm thinking of the hybrid CGI stuff and done... I think kind of varyingly well and other times maybe not as great is in the uh tales tales video game series because hmm. they've been using that like forever thinking back to like symphonia even was before the first that. time was they went yeah. to that hybrid like cell shading style because up until yeah. then, they were 2D games yeah they they definitely they, they were masters of really great 2d art stuff and then they switched over and frankly a lot of it still looks pretty good and it also is one of those things where it's very it makes it to be very much more um consistent in a video game setting where you're you know constantly kind of dropping in and out of animated segments and into uh you know interactive segments with the characters such that having it like that makes it less of a jarring jump i treat those differently though so since they're video games and like i don't like I experience it differently, and I have kind of different standards. Uh, yeah, for a video game. But what about the animated portions in that? Like, let's say the opening, the opening movie that they have for every Tales game. I think those are generally all hand done, right? Yep, they're all always two D, like mm. traditional animated. Yeah. Okay. I I tend to fall on the side of the. I would prefer it all be hand animated or at least um characters be hand animated um and i'll i will suffer a lower quality if that's what it takes uh i guess my follow-up question is for those of you which i guess is all of us who prefer the 2d animation how far down the quality scale would you have to turn it before you would say ah i think i would prefer they just do cg I mean, not as far as it used to be. I definitely can tolerate CG a lot more than I once was able. Like, as I said, I said hand-drawn just because that's kind of consistent with my thinking in past positions, but I just don't know that it's as strong an opinion as it used to be. Mm. Yeah, 
I think it comes. You're saying that like traditional action show, right? So your you know your shonen jump like adaptations yeah. are a good example. Okay, so like your your My Hero Academia's of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which thank thankfully that's done by Bones and animated phenomenally, <laughs> so they don't need to go that route. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Season six just started and uh, still enjoying it. So. Uh, anyway, well, let's look at that. For, look at look at that versus the new season of Leech, the reboot, which, which I have not watched any of. So you'll have to give us fill in the blanks for me. Yeah, it's don't unless you're like a huge Bleach head. And I I read Bleach manga for quite a while, and then I dropped out, and I came back into this. And you know, this is definitely an aside here on that first episode of that show. But I was like totally lost. I'm like what is even happening with these characters? They, they just kind of jump right in. They don't give any sort of like, you know, last time you watched this anime 10 years ago. Um, but that's one that I feel definitely has a lot of the 3d CGI effects. And I think they even have some into like the character stuff there. Mm. And, um, you know, it's has a reasonable budget cause they're not going to do a shonen jumpy thing like that without something reasonable. And like, it doesn't look great, but I'm also kind of like, I think I kind of go to this thing of like, if I don't care about it that much, then I'm kind of like, well, you know what? If it gets a thing done and it gets the point across and they don't have to like blow their budget trying to draw this thing nicely, but then it's also kind of like, well, why bother me? <laughs> right. And that, so to bring it more concrete, the thing that made me think of this is uh, I just watched the first episode of Chainsaw Man. Mm. Um, and they lean a lot on CG for the characters. Um, I mean, it's Mappa, so you know, it doesn't really surprise me. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I didn't realize that was a, a thing. It was most like CG characters so often. Like, I mean, CG for sure. Like, I kind of expect that the like, table stakes, like um, environments will be CG uh, often. Like, vehicles, definitely CG. Background characters, definitely cg but like main characters like especially in like a first episode i'm just come to expect that to be just spend the money in the first couple episodes and maybe you can skimp out later like i don't know it was just kind of a the bad sign for me that they're just all in on the cg for this I think with Chainsaw Man, though, it can work better because so many of the characters, especially like, you know, I mean, first episode, I don't think it's much of a spoiler, but like when Denji actually transforms, like once he transforms, I feel like Chainsaw Man, the character can be done in CGI and not really lose a lot because he has no discerning human features anymore, right? Well, I mean, he, his body is, is still a human body. He's got funky like basically helmet and so chainsaws. for me for me the issue i always had with 3d cg in, in anime is that it's so difficult to, to like th- 3d render th- these little micro expressions that characters make you know with their face mm-hmm. um it's that's why it, it can work in certain styles like in my opinion it works pretty decent like like i said it works really good in Stars. I think it can work in um, Chainsaw Man, but we, I have to watch more than the first step to really get an idea of, you know, mm-hmm. how hard the thing I wasn't paying super close attention to, like, where they were 3D, because I just assumed there was going to be a lot, because it's Mappa, and Mappa almost always mm-hmm. uses a very healthy amount of uh, 3D and their stuff, so. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point with that. Yeah, thinking to like, oh yeah, and stuff like a Gundam show where like they Gundams very early went to doing like CG stuff, and I think that's a totally fair point. And that yeah, does a Gundam have like facial expressions? Like, no, it has lights that that blink, which is a great effect to do with digital and CG and stuff. There. Well, yeah. although like if you look at the recent stuff from Sunrise, like they still hand draw robot stuff quite often. They do. It's true. They go the other way sometimes. A lot more rotoscoping these days. It's true, but like I was watching AMAIM and I was like, these are definitely hand-drawn robots in a lot of these sequences. So Mm -hmm. it was also also rotoscoping, but like, you know, they didn't have to. Which isn't evil. I don't think rotoscoping is inherently bad. I think it's fine as long as you are integrating it correctly. Like case in point with uh, Begundam Witch from Mercury. Uh, I watched the prologue and there's a pretty stellar... uh, mecha fight at the end i'm almost positive it was all rotoscoped but it looked really good so mm-hmm. i don't have a problem with that yeah 
Yeah, there's a there's a a line, a fine line, I think, with with the rotoscoping with especially human characters, like. Yeah, it has to integrate well. Why? Right? Like, it's one thing where if it's inconsistent with the way the rest of the like uh, anime is animated, then it's jarring. Like you're like that's your gripe with Yuri and Ice, right? Like, yeah, it's animated very traditionally, and then certain sequences are rotoscoped, and suddenly it just looks jarring because the frame rate feels different, and it just does not look the way the characters moved does not look the same. So it's very jarring. So as long as they're consistent with it, then I don't have a problem really. But going back to your Chainsaw Man thing, yeah, I I don't have any super strong opinions of it yet. I I need to watch more characters come into play besides you know like Denji and and Makima before I, mm-hmm. I, I really, uh, draw judgment. Um, I gotta say I love the opening though. Opening is oh yeah, freaking for sure. That, that, it's freaking amazing. I will say that your your micro expressions thing is probably a, a good way to put it. I would just say like it's, I would extend that more out of faces though into like the whole body, like the way shoulders connect, um, the way backs move and things like that. Yeah. Tend to be really sure. stiff in CG. Yeah, well, when you rig stuff in 3D, right, like, it's going to move differently than when somebody who studied traditional, like, you know, uh, 2D drawing has, you know, has their own. Uh, they Obviously, anime characters aren't always, like, Araki is famous for drawing people in bizarre contortions. But, mm-hmm. yeah. but, you know, it's something that people got used to, so. A lot of the craft of 2D animation is knowing when to break accurate physics for things that look better and replicating that in 3D is hard. It is. Yeah. Because you have to custom make it for that one scene if you're going to have have it break physics. So yeah, I, I do totally get your point, Sam. And I yeah. generally do agree. Um, it, it It's not just facial expression. It's also just body language as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I yeah. And again, I think that's why we're, I think that's where Beastars kind of really worked because again, animals don't show the same you know, micro expressions and I mean obviously they're anthropomorphized, but they're still very, very leaning towards their like root animal look. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've I have other things to say about B stars, but I'll uh maybe save that for another episode. But yeah, that's so thus concludes my my game uh, my continuing crusade <laughs> against uh, CG in anime. <laughs> continuing to prove that we are in fact bubblegum crisis yeah. boomer otaku. <laughs> I mean Indeed. that is what it kinda of what it comes down to. I'm sure if you asked new fans they'd be like, What are you even talking about? There's no difference. Like, oh Yeah, right. We'd have to like actually go back to something where that's exclusively pan drawn and be like, This is what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. And sound yeah. like a crazy person. Yeah. So. And like the boomers we are. Yes. Yeah, just tell them, just just watch Berserk ninety seven, and then then <laughs> then tell me about CG animation and how you can't. I don't know, man. Four C, with the exception of of the part one of the Golden Age arc, they, in my opinion, crushed parts two and three. The CG definitely paid off for certain parts of it, but we can go, we can discuss. We we, we honestly should just do a Berserk episode one of these days, so we can really do a deep dive. But all right, so now that we're Good, good ways in here. We will come back around to Otaku no Video, which is not surprising that we spent nearly 20 minutes talking about a deep otaku subject that was not specifically in the video, but is definitely something that was would have been discussed by everyone who was in that group uh, had they had the same issues. Um, so last time we were kind of all over the place. And I, one of those things is I definitely, I did, I totally didn't realize it either, but people said, and I'm hundred percent on board that the little news, the news breaks, as I call them were to give uh, a very distinct timeline in the, in the OVA, which I think is kind of interesting because there's very few that try to actually have things be interspersed and living with a reality based uh, timeline. Um, so one of the, one of the things that I saw in this, I don't think we discussed this last time was, uh, once Kubo goes and starts to really kind of get the tour of the, uh, the, the homeland or Furusato, um, the thing that I thought was pretty cool was that. You know, here he is, a person who is trying to be passionate about this tennis thing and is 
girlfriend, but nobody who's involved in that world cares about it at all. And when he goes to the the homeland there, and this is, you know, first starts the scene about 23 minutes in, you know, it's one of these things where I think it was very interesting that you just see that like everyone is there and everything is out in the open and everyone is so exceedingly passionate about like their general stuff and then down into their very specific uh, subtopic. Um, and one of the things that came in is that the other people there, you know, call Kubo, uh, they, they literally city boy. And I kind of did a little, a little look up on it and it, you know, would roughly translate to like, you know, something, if you were in English and you were localizing it, you'd probably call them like a preppy, uh, person, you know, it's like a, a sophisticated, you know, like a sophisticated, fashionable young man, which I thought is kind of a city boy is such a good, such a great, uh, invective to throw at someone. Uh, I was curious if anyone had any other thoughts on that kind of area. I mean, when they, he goes into their, their, uh, yeah. Their den. Yeah. Hmm. That, that does sound like, a maybe similar to my experience in college, although not quite the same. And it's relatable in that way of like this guy going here. Although I was already into anime and manga at the time, but like, it was kind of like, oh, there's all this other stuff and all these other people like it too. And unabashedly, um, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, that's a very fair point. I think, uh, certainly in college, I had a very similar thing, although phase, there wasn't something where it's as much as you see there, where he literally just walks into this, (laughs) into this place. It was more like walking and then with some other folks, but I don't think there was ever a, a time where I just all of a sudden walked into a place and was like, Oh, this is everything all the time for all the people. Um, but there definitely was some of that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, their, their HQ was basically, you know, every facet of otaku right? Not just anime, but, you know, military, sci-fi, like, Anything that was kind of considered in, you know, uh, an extreme topic to be a fandom in at that time was represented in that den, right? Yeah, they were clearly a jack-of-all-trades circle, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, it was it was interesting, too, there. There's a, there's a little portrait interview that they get some way, then they come back and they, you know, they start looking at uh, uh, Daikon for and talking about Anno being such an incredible animator and looking at stuff from that and like Macross and um I think that uh, was an Itano scene. Yeah, well that's the thing. They said it was Anno, but it looked like it was an it was an Ichiro Itano scene. And um Itano was uh Anno's boss. Basically Anno showed up pretty much at his doorstep and was like, hey, I'm I'm I want to learn. He's like, all right, great. I'm going to work you to the bone. And uh, Itano worked, worked his Ekiano like to the bone. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of awesome stuff out of him, you know, not ever sleeping and just animating nonstop insane things. Um, and as, as part of that scene, the other thing I thought was kind of, was kind of fun c- continuing with that uh, theme of the everyone being so into stuff was that, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, like the first fix is always free. And they they pretty much literally say like, hey, if, if you stay here once, you can never get out. And Kubo had a choice there. And he's like, yep, I'm I'm in. And uh, so I thought that was a, a reasonably interesting thing. I mean, he probably didn't take them seriously on that. And it just kind of, yeah, whatever. But uh, hey, this is cool. I'm going to try it out. And then, yeah, it turned out to be true. He was stuck. Yeah. Yep. Continue with that. So then it then it kind of goes into his lessons. And I think this is one of these interesting things that I you forget about these days is all so much of the information and stuff that was passed around in in the show and then also in real life was from magazines. Um, you know, particularly in the eighties and like definitely definitely still in the nineties. Um 
you know, it's one of these things where I think we we just forget because we have every bit of information instantly available via a you know internet computer device. But magazines were, and in probably honestly, in some cases, are still uh, a huge source of knowledge, and particularly for all of these like deep otaku sources where you look like in there, and like even in there in the mid '80s, they show like you know, these hyper-focused things of, like, these, you know, like, model gun magazine, and you can't tell if it's a monthly or a quarterly or a weekly, but um, a lot of those things had good reference materials, and so that's why everyone would keep these magazines around. I was curious for other people's opinions on on the kind of the, the magazine culture. I feel like Japan has been incredibly resilient to full digitization compared to other industrialized nations because uh, largely on the back of manga honestly uh because i feel like you still see a huge amount of all sorts of magazines in in convenience stores like in the huge racks like for sure there's stuff that's you know available online and people a lot of people look at online but there's still so much in print i think and that's also ties into the, a large amount of the population you know being being boomers so like literal boomers, so you know they <laughs> would rather still read their magazines in the newspapers rather than read everything on their phone. I mean, it's it's a unique market over there too, right? Because they're so geographically so small that it's much easier to true distribution so easy, right? You have a country mm-hmm. the size of California, and really half of the population lives in what five cities. Yeah, so it's really easy to get you know mass massive amounts of print media distributed to a huge amount of the population like i mean it's mind-blowing how the manga industry still is able to sustain you know weekly printing those weekly phone books distributed them every single week to everywhere including those you know like dagashi stores that carry them right like little Mm -hmm. kids run to the little it's like a bodega like they run to the neighborhood dagashi shop buy their weekly and you know buy whatever and then they go home and read and the economy of scale on those phone books is just insane. Mm-hmm. Like, as far as how cheap they can print that much content. Although, I, that, though they are still surviving, the heyday does seem uh, over. The jump yeah. survives, but lots of them are quickly falling by the wayside. Yeah, I think a lot of them are pivoting to not weekly anymore, only monthly, and going more digital like it's it, it, it definitely is a sign of of the changing times and just how not sustainable those business models were i feel like manga kind of could kind of survived the bubble of the 80s yeah. and 90s mm-hmm. uh really one of the only industries that kind of, that kind of thrived after largely in the back i feel of also like international interest in it because sure. you know for for a large amount of the early odds i feel like that's that visual media was one of the, japan's major exports Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, that and that it was super cheap within Japan as well. Yes. That probably helped it to survive. Yeah, yeah. indeed. I mean, yeah. when you're paying a couple hundred yen for, you know, hundreds of pages of <laughs> of content, yeah. that's that's, you know, I don't know what they are now. I'm sure they've I'm sure they've that that uh uh inflation has hit them, but you know, I recall being able to 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 buy, you know, week like Sunday weeklies for like 100 yen. Mm-hmm. Back in the you know early nineties, and I, and that would literally you know entertain me for an entire entire day. It was like the cheapest way for my parents when I was in Japan. I was bored. He's like, "Here, read this," and they just bought me a a couple of phone books. <laughs> and then when I was done, we just stacked them up, and and they had piles of them all over the place because you know there was the they were there was like even a, a separate way to have them recycled, or pe- some people would just wait until you know, dig through the piles and read the old stuff because they can get it free that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually wondering with the magazine stuff um, that there, there's such a rich source of like historical um, information about culture. Um, you know, like the, the anime age and the animedia and uh, boy, animate, animate. Well, oh, wait, that's the, well, but yeah, store. all, all, yeah, I, I guess all those, store. The, new type, those, yeah, new type. Hey, that's a new good type. one. Um, new type's a major one still. But they're they're also very commercially focused, right? Like looking back on them, um, I wonder if anybody has somebody must out there have collected the more 
fan created or more underground ones that like have the kind of more feelings of the fans you know the kind of stuff that you would find in internet forums today of like what the fans actually think versus what the the companies are dictating to the fans i'd really love to read some of that stuff i bet you there are a handful of people but good luck getting them to digitize it right like that's an astronomical effort like like the anime fan version of like 2600 yeah yeah kind of yes Or, you know, like um, the stuff from uh, Call Me Cat, right, where people would publish these things. Not as much anymore, but little books about stuff that they studied. Yeah, and I think that's, a, that's, an, in, that's an interesting kind of a... It's a really fun thing about having good magazine as a magazine culture and stuff, is if you have old ones going back through, it's like the, you know, the, the Natsukashi, the... Uh, uh, What's the not Japanese word for that? I don't know. But um, it's... Uh, nostalgic. Yeah, nostalgic. There we go. Um, this nostalgic village. But it's also kind of an interesting point there in that you could go th- and look through, you know, like you could go and look through new types from, you know, like 93 to 97 and see like this change of things over time and what stuff is popular and what things are emphasized. And, you know, that's new type is the most commercial of all of those types of magazines um it's all just entirely big ads for stuff but mm-hmm. even at that it's kind of interesting it's like you get this you know these days the closest thing you have is you know like the archive.org and like wayback machine for internet stuff and that's way less precise than an actual printed magazine where it's like no they can't change the layout on you you get to see all of the original fonts and layouts and the sub ads inside of the ads and everything in there mm-hmm. um and it's uh, it's one of those things that we've definitely, particularly in the West, was never as big as in Japan. But it's one of those things we've definitely have uh, have lost. Yeah, yeah. They do have some old um, anime magazines on um, the Internet Archive on Archive.org. Um, I did check. Not a huge selection, but some of them are on there. Somebody should go uh, ship them a crate of magazines for them to scan. There you go. Um, okay, I want to go back a couple minutes in the in the show, but uh, to the the speaking of which, the the collector otaku portrait, which I thought was that one is super hilarious and awesome because uh, th- this person you know says born nineteen sixty one, fifteen years as an otaku in ninety one. That puts them, you know, starting being an otaku nineteen seventy six at age fifteen. Um, same as the others. And I, I thought that there was one quote the person says in there is, you know, he's like, Hey, you know, compared to others, my talking about his collection of, of, uh, video cassettes, which I assume would be beta max, not VHS. Um, you know, but it says compared, Most compared to those tapes looked like VHS to me, but I could be tr- wrong. Yeah. They definitely were VHS. That's crazy. I think it'd have been the other, but maybe recording VHS was easier, but his quote of, you know, the translation of, compared to others, it's not that big of a collection. I only collect a few, the few genres that I like. And then meanwhile, that's in this room that's entirely taken over with video cassettes to the point where he says, oh, I can't even actually watch everything because I'm so busy <laughs> recording stuff. It's just that is just the most like otaku cringe statement ever made. It's so perfect. I resemble that with my dvd collection (laughs) i have things that i bought from the um uh jenny on going out and adv going out of business sales in like 2007 and 8 that i still haven't gotten around to watching yet same where they like drilled out the uh upcs (laughs) so you can sell them (laughs) where it was like you could get them from right stuff for 25 discs for 100 bucks yeah jeez Yeah, I mean, I'm literally staring at my pile at my office, and uh, an embarrassing amount of it is still wrapped. Yeah. Uh, I would say that. Uh, I, I, I don't want to put a percentage, but I would say an embarrassing amount is still wrapped. But you know, the important thing is that it's there, and that's yeah. what matters. And it's only those few categories and genres that you actually really like that you have those I things. Mean, it was hard to resist because it was, you know, at the time, the tape trading and fan sub era was still in close memory. 
and I was looking at those closeout prices and going, this is cheaper than I used to get fan VHS fan subs for. Sure, I can take a chance on this. Oh, yeah. Then there's the um, the the kind of scarcity of it that we're all, uh, unfortunately, all too well aware of how out of print this stuff gets very quickly. And it's like, yep. if I want to watch this thing, I don't want to watch it right now, but I know I will want to watch it. So I got to buy it now <laughs> so that I have the ability to later. And even with digital, right, even with streaming, we, we know that also is not true as we were finding, like, looking back at, uh, what is it, a couple of weeks ago, we're finding, like, oh, this show's not available anymore. What the heck happened? <laughs> yep. Yep. Shows go away. And then and then there's even other stuff, too, there just in the last episode between all the between the that terrible new translation of the Gundam movies on Netflix where oh, yeah. you're like, oh, <laughs> Okay, so what is what does this even mean? So now I have to have this other copy, and if that's not available, then then you're you're out of luck. Um, There's also uh, thinking of the tapes thing, and for the fan, uh, well, at least of, of interest to me is like when you tape stuff off TV, uh, you get those juicy commercials, uh, and I love those. Uh, <laughs> Oh, especially Japanese commercials, right? Some of those. Yeah. Were, oh, yeah. Or the I, I still, absolute I still remember. I still remember watching some of the uh, the early Veroni Kenshin yep. fan subs. We oh, had yeah. a club with, with the flipper with, pocket computer and Doraemon sausage. See, I remember this. I remember the Xenogears commercials that were on there, and I was like, oh. Oh, for me, it was the F one race for N sixty four. That was the the ad that I remember from those Kenshin tapes. And I remember one for like the band that had done the ending. Was it one third or whatever the ending for the um, TM Revolution? One third uh, also so did one of the endings. It was whichever one had the train that's tracks. One, that's one third going through. Yeah. The end. yeah, one third, and the commercial that had like a helicopter shot doing a 360 around the band or something that would be, you know, really easy with drones now, but they'd clearly sent, spent some expense on it at the time. So for some reason that stuck in my memory. And also, wasn't there like a Kenshin RPG? Was it, would it have been Saturn at that PS1. point? PS1. PS1? Yeah, it's interesting how many of those commercials from Kenshin fan subs still stick in <laughs> yeah, my yeah. head. That was one of the last fan subs we showed officially in Club, I want to say. That maybe, no, you know what? No, Hanayori uh, Dongo was probably the last one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that was. Yeah. yeah. That was. But that one didn't have that commercials, so. At, yeah, <laughs> that one didn't have commercials and also did not have a commercially released US version oh, yeah. until a few years. Like, actually, not that long later. I want to say they actually released. I can't remember who licensed that. I think it was Biz. Uh, I think yeah, it was. Which was Came surprising because it, it didn't even have a Japanese commercial release at the time, I think. Right. And then the all of a sudden they got popular and they did that live action of it and that was like super, super popular. So. Yeah. But also I just remember really wanting two VCRs so that I could copy fan sub tapes for friends. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um... Continuing forward a little bit here, uh, there is one of the news breaks from uh, September 1883 saying that a, a you know Korean Airlines jet sought down by Soviet. I, I looked this up. It was a Korean Airlines flight uh, 007. It was a flight originally from JFK to Seoul. They stopped in Anchorage for refueling, and through a series of navigational mistakes, they ended up flying kind of near or over uh soviet air airspace and were shot down just over the sakhalin islands uh which is you know a whole different topic for a whole you know geopolitical history uh otaku to cover not not us but that's uh and that was that was a fairly large international incident uh at the time that was that was pretty bad um but that's that's what that reference was for and then that um, prefaced the uh the portrait going into the military otaku, correct? Yes, that one did. Um, and I think that was a, that's another one that I, by this point I'm like, okay, so it's kind of funny that, yeah, now you have like the military otaku, which that one is kind of funny in the way it's shot because 
you know, this guy's out there trying to be sneaky at night. Meanwhile, there's a camera crew there lighting him up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I think that was the re- that was the time when I was sure that they were not like real interviews. I was like, oh, okay, this is clearly yeah. not. <laughs> that one was the first like obvious like, okay, this this is staged for sure. Like, but back you know, hindsight, back in the day, obviously these days we can tell how yeah how uh, forced a lot of this was, but. Um, but in one of those things, I thought, it, I thought it was kind of, uh, it was interesting because they give all of these different careers at Pfeifferin, you know, from kind of being the, the neats to like teachers, software developers. And I was kind of like, okay, well, so like, why are they showing all of these different careers that are, that people are in? And it gets into even more ones later. I'm like, why, why have this all there? And I kind of, um my brain kind of went to like the, the fight club uh, quote where they go and they kidnap the, I forget what he's like the mayor or something. And, and the, you know, paraphrase quote is like, you know, we cook your food, we drive your ambulances, we guard you while you're asleep. Do not blank with us. <laughs> yeah. There's a bit of that. And also just the opportunity for jokes, like the military otaku being a girl's school English teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah, and jumping forward to the uh the the interview with the uh I don't know if he's actually American or not, but uh Sean, the portrait of who's where his profession is listed as a missionary, but in the way he talks about stuff, clearly he's an otaku missionary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, well he actually kind of was in real life, given that, you know, he and the two people his character is named after were like the main staff of General Products USA, which was Gainax's attempt at opening an otaku goods store in San Francisco and doing mail order from there that didn't last very long. Can you go into a little more detail on that? It only lasted like a year or two, and a lot of the problem was that they didn't quite have their market down yet and the timing between Japanese and US fandom because you know there was a lag between when stuff came out in Japan and when we actually got to watch it back then often in years like early 90s you know still the most popular stuff was like UI and Dirty Pair but Mm -hmm. most of that wasn't getting new merch at the time so they had merch for a lot of the coolest newest stuff that was in Japan but that wasn't what the American customers wanted to buy at that point because the market wasn't really there yet. They probably had no idea what it was because it was new in Japan. They wouldn't see it for yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, I've heard that was a problem. And also probably just the bursting of the economic bubble came at the exact wrong time for that venture. Ooh, yeah. And I know Gynax wasn't in a great position themselves at that point because they lost money making Nadia and pretty much only kept themselves alive until Ava came out on things like etchy computer games that they were one of the pioneering companies in. Hey, they made a killing on that, right? I mean, they... yeah. <laughs> hindsight. Oh, man, I, mean, I if... remember I got a... Well, their Super Nintendo games was... And I didn't know that was... They made anime at the time, but then I watched Ava, and I was like, this is the guys that made my video game. <laughs> Is it the uh, Princess Maker series, amongst others? Yeah, though, like, the computer game otaku we see it was in the uh, Zoku portrait of an otaku was playing, I believe, their first one, uh, Cybernetic High School, which was apparently like a quiz game with, you know, progressive undressing. Yeah, the the uh, precursor to the uh, to the Mahjong strip games that exploded in the 90s and early aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, going, going back to one of the previous things, Mike, I remember, I think in the, one of the overtimes you said it for, I believe it was the, uh, the second or the second portrait for the one that's, uh, in the business office with the Char mask at the end. I think you, you had some info on that. Can you relay that here? Uh, the office was apparently Gainax president Toshio Okada's office that they dressed it up with a plant and things least according to some of the commentary tracks on the Blu-ray. And I can believe it. Uh, Shoot, I was trying to look back on some of my sources, because speaking of General Products USA, Leia Hernandez um, 
is a com one of the employees is a comic artist and did a web comic based on her experience of that that unfortunately she never quite completed but it was called Bunny Garrow and it was like 2013 2014 or so and I was trying to find it again and the website is broken so I have to go back and scrape it off archive.org at some point just to make sure that I still have a copy so yeah that's one thing that ties into what we were talking about before of um magazines making keeping sources together in the way they were at the time easier I guess I would say anyway she really kind of got thrown into Gynax and saw the you know this Gynax thing and saw them as a pretty horribly unprofessional company and just generally didn't like her experience with them in my impression though it was interesting and gave her a lot of stories and she was always angry at them for what they pulled in Otaku no Video with, you know, the overdubbing of the interview, and felt like her co-worker was just horribly set up and done dirty by that, though I'm not sure how much of that has to do with her own opinion of her time there, but it's an interesting story and a view of Gynax of the time from, you know, someone who was a bit disgruntled. A valid uh, view of history, for sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, just uh, getting in there, one of the other uh, news breaks a little bit later where they talk about the, the Lockheed Maru Benny bribery scandal. Like, one, it is such a fabulous, interesting thing. I'm so glad they put it in there. It has uh, Tanaka Kakue, the, uh, the you know, I, think he's, I think his common name is like Yami no Daisori, like the, the, the dark prime minister who is just the most incredible character in political history, like on the planet. Uh, so if you want to learn more about the incredible Lockheed Marubeni bribery scandal, I highly recommend listening to the um, history of Japan podcast episodes 326 and 327. Uh, they cover this in, in great detail and it is a truly absurd level of Japanese political corruption. It is brilliant. Well, I mean, it, when you think about the era, it's peak bubble economy Japan, so that does not surprise me in the least. Okay. So, yeah, I, I just definitely want to make sure that that one gets mentioned. Make sure that shows um, up in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, it's... Oh, just quickly back to the military airsoft otaku. Yes. It's kind of interesting that, like, in the... 2010s, Gynax bought an airsoft bar in Kichijoji called, oh, EA pronounced air, more or less. Oh, air, I see. (laughs) Yeah. And then, I'm not sure if as an expense or just, you know, as a write-off or just for fun, they filmed a live-action show there that they then, like, showed at FanimeCon and sold the DVDs of in the airsoft bar. (laughs) I may be one of, like, a handful of people who actually own a copy of them on this continent. It's just like a super awkward Super Sentai parody where they're like, the main character is roped into working at this airsoft bar because she needs a part-time job and is told, well, also you're the new Peach Ranger and (laughs) she totally does not want to be a part of it. And so there's just a lot of like social awkwardness comedy going on there. Uh, Gynax also later made the airsoft, uh, girls and airsoft anime, right? What was that called? Oh, I don't remember. I haven't seen that one. I don't Um, remember the title, but I think I vaguely know what you're talking about. It was, it was later in their, uh, times in the, the kind of the, the downturn. Oh. Anyway, I actually visited the Gynax airsoft bar, yeah, in, like, 2017, and it was interesting. For one thing, because there was actually smoking, which I'm so not used to anymore. But just, you know, it's a tiny little place, though it has a kitchen and some food, which was actually not bad and not horribly priced. Um... And then you reserve a time slot and get to shoot some airsoft on their small indoor firing range. It's just a 
kind of a small restaurant on the second floor of a building. And, um, but one person came in who I guess was a regular and was totally showing off this, what he considered super badass, like custom airsoft gun that was a replica of something from one of the live action G.I. Joe movies. And he thought it was just the coolest thing ever. And he seemed very much like a person who would appear in Otaku no video. So yes, airsoft otaku definitely exist. I see that uh, anime is called Stella, Stella Women's Academy High School Division Class C3. The girls okay, airsoft. I feel like I've heard the title, but I've never actually watched it. I'm sure it's as good as one would expect from later <laughs> Gainax. Yeah, from 2013. Interesting. Definitely stuff. have not watched that one. Um, the next, I kind of want to jump a little bit forward here. There's uh, in the in the Zoku uh, series, there's one of the portrait of Otaku on uh, a guy who's doing garage kit stuff. Because so much of the, especially the second, especially the Zoku, is all on garage kit stuff. And there's just so much contradiction in everything here. Where the the portrait is hilarious because. You know, he says this this person who's who's into it says starts talking about making full scratch figures, literally just like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, when if I don't like it, then I just literally make the whole thing myself. And then talking about how and then in the over the voiceover, they talk about, you know, doing a uh, garage kit stuff. It's not that popular now and it takes the ultimate skill and dedication, but you know, it's probably going to take over real soon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then their survey results are not that. And then, you know, the, a lot of the rest of the, the episode, that whole episode is about various garage kit shenanigans of them going from garage kit to producing things to then making a Apple sized factory in China to have them produce things and then switching over to latex production. And so I, I'm curious what, what are the thought people have on the garage kit madness? Well, so much of the business part of Zoku is just a straight parody, like at the whole concept of otaku businesses even getting that big, yeah. which really doesn't hit now because otaku businesses run like normie businesses is like totally a thing now. <laughs> Those are the successful ones. <laughs> yeah. Though, definitely kind of fits that, you know, when you look at how running like a normal business was a total joke to Gynax, some of their, like, tax evasion and other financial shenanigans start making you go, hmm, when you think a little bit down the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I, I feel like the... While the beginning of the series, um, the anime part in the first half m- m- kind of roughly approximates the, the Gainax story, um, I feel like in the second half, roughly, like, the interviews take more of a front seat for me, and the the anime is more of pure fantasy, and to be honest, kind of goes off the rails, and I, I, I stop caring about it. It's more indulgent is how I look at it. It gets a lot more yeah. indulgent as uh yeah, I do agree. I feel like the portraits are more uh of the interesting part and in especially once they start doing a lot of the time jump stuff, right? Then it goes complete in my opinion it goes completely off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Yamaga says in the commentary that the second episode is basically, you know, science fiction and it's not necessarily taken as that by modern audiences. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's not really, yeah, even if that was the intent, it really wasn't presented uh, that way. One of the things I... It's just things that would have been self-evidently absurd at the time, but are not as self-evidently absurd in hindsight, because a lot of it was early prescient. That's a fair point. Like, we may not have Tokyo Otaku Land, which would be kind of cool, but... You know, we have Super Nintendo Land at Universal, and we have Ghibli actually opening a theme park soon. And they've had their their museum for a long time. Yep. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to give them credit for that one, because what they had is like, your otaku dreams come true, basically, right? For every yeah. otaku. 
like, I don't know, just saying that there are theme parks that cover some otaku stuff. Like, Ghibli is not exactly otaku. Um, yeah, Ghibli definitely yeah, walks more towards... Yeah, they're like, the Ghibli is their own thing, almost, right? Like, it's, yeah. uh, like, I even hesitate to call Ghibli stuff anime these days. Like, it's made in Japan, for sure, but... Like it's, it's basically it, Disney, it's, right? Yeah. Well, I I don't know. That's a little. Redu- I always hated that comparison because it's so uh, yeah. reductive. Well, I just mean it, it's mainstream yeah. in that way. Right? It is. It is mainstream. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 how I explain it to like you know air quotes normie people is like oh what is it? oh it's like Japanese Disney. It's not the air quotes weird stuff. So as as <laughs> they think regular anime is. Um. <laughs> At any rate, when you're repeatedly going back and forth with James Cameron for the number one movie in Japanese box office history, then yeah, you're mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we are getting close to the end of times. What? Like Princess Mononoke, Titanic, Spirited Away, Avatar, something like that for at least that chunk of the Japanese box office number one movies. Mm-hmm. History. So, we are getting close to the end of time. So, I will turn it past over to everyone so they can give their any last inputs of anything they want to on this uh, wild ride through through history. We will start with Nick. Uh Yeah, I guess going towards the end where they actually managed to take their otaku, you know, use their otaku powers to actually, you know, not only just monetize, but actually make successful, but two successful businesses, you know, have one be hostily taken over and then ultimately buy it back with their own homebrew, you know, anime studio. Uh, was such a far-fetched notion back in 1991, and now it's, you know, it, it, it's, it can be considered almost lucrative to run some sort of otaku tangent business right or or if not fully committed to otaku culture like have it have a part of it be uh tied into it right like have you know certain product line that features a lot of like air quotes waifus right that's like a thing now and that's you know a lot i feel like a lot of companies that are normally not necessarily associated with anime or and a manga and otaku stuff are you know have at least those like kind of products, because they know that that's a significant amount of the market that they can, you know, kind of get a little bit extra from. So it it, it is interesting to me that it's it, the if you look at it from today's lens, it seems not so far fetched. But I mean, back when this was made, it was considered laughable to be able to monetize being a fan of this stuff. And uh, yeah, how times have changed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, look at American otaku business. It's gone from, like, um, the interview with the portrait of otaku, who was one of the General Products USA employees, plus Animego and a few other very minor niche businesses at the time, to having mass amounts of money thrown at it by mainstream streaming broadcasters, and having the niche broadcasters all bought out by Sony. Yep. Yep. It's fair. It's pretty mainstream at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's at least a billion-dollar industry now, right? I mean, the the funny buyout was, was I want to say, like, 1.7? Is that right? I I'm believe making it. it. I'm making that in the present. Uh, let's see. I will, I will go with my last thoughts next. Uh, uh, I tried to do a calculation in each episode of this when it came out. If 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 it were released today, it would cost you about 130 US dollars per 45 minute episode plus Oof. plus taxes and shipping. So uh, I'm going to say, you know, something around like, you know, 100, 170, 170 dollars per episode. So, uh, <laughs> oh you know, yeah. So you, you have to be uh, dead. You have to be dedicated to uh, support this uh, small company, but uh, you don't have to pay that. You have to pay a lot less than that to uh, to get the episodes now, which is uh, which is nice, and they look better than they ever have. So it's a uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely a fun series. Free. Yep, it's definitely a fun brush. series. You can watch it on uh, watch it on retro retro cush, and it's not not a ton of time, and it's 
it is definitely an interesting capsule of a whole lot of different uh, cultural things and perspectives, some of which have aged reasonably and other ones you look back and you're like, huh, well, yeah, things did used to be like. I will pass it to Sam next. I will say that I, I, I think I've said this last episode, but I really enjoy this from a kind of a, this um, OVA from like a historical perspective. I don't so much enjoy it from a purely entertainment point of view. I mean, I do, um, but it's more, I get more enjoyment out of it looking at it like historically and what it kind of means in context of all those things. Um, and as I said, like I, I eventually end up liking the portrait of otakus way more. Um, especially the last one is hilarious. Um, it's not an anime that I could recommend to a casual anime fan. Like you got to be at least like a level two or level three anime fan t- before I can recommend it. Um, but if you're listening to this podcast, you should be watching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you've made it to episode twenty, you you, you should probably see. This. Yeah. What the okay. hell's wrong with you? And yeah, go watch it. And. Mike, uh, one thing about the very last portrait of an otaku, I agree with uh, the Garage Kid otaku, who was one of the commentators on one of the commentary tracks, saying that the part that always bothered him about that last portrait otaku interview is that the person drops his bag of cells and oh, runs. Yeah. It's like, no, that <laughs> yeah. thing is the thing he would not let go. It's <laughs> true, I had the same reaction. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, with that, I will say thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Amo Kenzoku saying Saraba.